0: I also want to read for us from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 37 to 39. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And then this reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. And is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our kinsman, redeemer. Amen. We had an infant baptism this morning, and so I think it's a good opportunity to revisit what the Bible says about our baptisms and our babies. And so we're going to look at some passages that describe what God does in baptism, and we will look at some passages that uh, speak to who our children are. As I said before the baptism this morning, there's really nothing more countercultural than infant baptism. And I say that because within the American church, I'd say even the vast majority of those who practice infant baptism don't really understand what it means or what they're doing. And so this is an area where we really need a lot of instruction uh, from God's Word and, and clarification. So we'll look at some passages that tell us what baptism is all about. We'll look at some passages that tell who our children are. And then we'll see how all of that comes together to really give us a biblical philosophy and practice of parenting. Let's start with a few New Testament passages on baptism. Uh, I just read for us from Acts chapter 2. Peter there preaches the gospel after the Holy Spirit has been poured out and the Jews are convicted of their sin. And they cry out, what shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? And then Peter gives his answer. And I just read it for us, but let me break it down a bit. Peter says, Repent. That is, turn from sin and self towards God. He says, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. Peter says, if you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven, then get baptized. And when they are baptized, Peter says, God will declare their sins forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. Just as surely as the water will be poured over the body for cleansing, so the blood of Jesus will be sprinkled on them in baptism to secure their forgiveness and their cleansing. We confess in the Creed there is one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It's the confession of the church down through the ages. Baptism is for forgiveness. You want to be washed clean of your sins? Peter says, get baptized. And then he goes on, he says, and you will receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When they are baptized, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon them as the water is poured over them, so the Spirit will be poured out upon them. They will enter into Pentecost. They will enter into the realm of the Spirit. They'll be given the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of the Father. And then Peter goes on, he says, for the promise, that is this promise of forgiveness and the promise of the Spirit, this promise that is attached to baptism, this promise is for you and your children and to all who are afar off. Those who are afar off, of course, are the Gentiles. Uh, he goes on, he says, as many as the Lord our God will call. Uh, we see here that he uh, connects this with the children of those he's preaching to. The promise is for you and to your children. I'll expound on that aspect of it in just a moment. But just notice here that Peter extends the promise and this invitation to children. To, to the children of those who respond to his call. Take another text. We didn't read this one, but it's a familiar passage. Another baptismal text in Romans chapter 6. Paul has just expounded on the grace of God this free and gracious salvation we have in Christ Jesus, how Christ has come, and He's undone the work of the first Adam as the last Adam. And He's created a new humanity. And and this is fully God's grace at work from beginning to end. It's all God's grace. We're forgiven and accepted by God totally apart from our works. And so then that raises a question that Paul asks at the beginning of Romans 6, shall we go on in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? See what Paul says about baptism here? In baptism, we are united to Christ. You can think of baptism as a kind of wedding ceremony. Christ is the groom. The one being baptized is the bride. And in the waters of baptism, God joins you together with Christ. He makes you one with Christ. In baptism, you are joined to Christ and become one with him. So you take what is his, and he takes what is yours. When you're united to Christ in baptism, you get... His life and righteousness, even as He has taken your sin and condemnation. That's what happens in baptism. Baptism, therefore, gives you a new identity as one united to Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, you are free from sin. You've been set free from sin and you've been set free for service to God. Paul asks the question, shall we go on in sin that God's grace may abound? And basically he says no. You've been baptized. No, you can't go on in sin because you've been baptized. You've been baptized into Christ Jesus. You've been united to Christ Jesus. So no, you cannot go on in sin. For Paul, the Christian life is shaped by baptism. For Paul, Christian ethics is really baptismal ethics. For Paul, Christian identity is really a baptismal identity. God gives us an identity. We don't choose or create our own identity. An identity is granted to us in the waters of baptism. Or take another passage, Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have been clothed with Christ Jesus. Here, Paul says, baptism is a clothing ritual. Which connects it with various Old Testament clothing rituals. I think especially the, the, the Levitical ordination when the Levites were ordained to the priesthood. There was a whole ritual they went through. You can read about this in Exodus and in Leviticus. When a member of the tribe of Levi was going to be ordained to the priesthood, there was an elaborate ritual he went through which included a washing with water and a clothing ceremony where he would put on his priestly vestments. Paul connects all of that to baptism. In effect, he says, baptism has swallowed up Old Covenant priestly ordination. So now, when you are baptized, you become a New Covenant priest. You are clothed with Christ Jesus. Christ Himself is your priestly vestments. It's as if Paul is saying here that Old Covenant priestly ordination has been folded into and fulfilled in baptism. And so we can talk about the priesthood of the baptized. We enter into the royal priesthood in baptism. And of course, all of this connects with another text, Hebrews chapter 10, which says, Having had our bodies washed with water, an obvious reference to baptism, we have boldness to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Having been baptized, we now have access to the most holy place. Again, what's happening here? Well, priests are holy people with access to holy places. And that's what Hebrews 10 is saying. When we've been baptized, we become priests, we become holy people, and so now we have access to holy spaces, to the most holy place in particular, the heavenly sanctuary. Because baptism connects us with Christ's own priesthood and makes us shares in his priesthood, now we have access to the heavenly sanctuary. Or consider another passage we read this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're back to Peter. Peter says there, baptism now saves you. And he's actually making a comparison with Noah's ark. Just as Noah was saved through water, so we are saved through water as well. Peter says, baptism now saves you. And then he explains what that means. Not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Okay, what kind of contrast is Peter making here between the cleansing of the flesh and the cleansing of the conscience? Well, again, I would say go read the book of Leviticus. The Old Covenant system had various baptisms, but they only cleansed the flesh, not the heart or the conscience. Peter is contrasting Old Covenant and New Covenant. Old covenant baptisms under the law with the new covenant baptism in Christ. Peter says, now we have a baptism that actually cleanses the conscience. So when you receive this baptism, your conscience is clear because you know your sins are forgiven. Baptism appeals to God for cleansing. It's an appeal God answers. So if you're baptized, you can know God forgives your sins. Of course, Peter's phrase, baptism now saves you, is really shorthand. What he really means is God saves you through baptism. And of course, it's not by baptism alone, but also by the Word and by the Lord's Supper. These are God's gifts, God's means, God's ways of giving us Christ. And of course, Peter's also not saying baptism saves you automatically even if you don't believe. He's not saying our response to our baptism doesn't matter. You have to cling to your baptism in faith the same way a drowning man clings to a life preserver. Because in clinging to your baptism in faith, you are clinging to Christ Himself the Christ who has baptized you, the Christ into whose name you've been baptized. All the promises made to us in baptism are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. But Peter wants us to see that what happens in baptism is real. It's effective because Christ is present in the waters of baptism. His Spirit is present in the waters of baptism. Now a couple things here before we go further. Note that none of these passages that I have given to you from the New Testament, none of these passages say that baptism is a symbol or a picture. A lot of times when we're reading passages like this and they speak of baptism, we mentally insert that baptism is a symbol of these things rather than actually accomplishing these things. That's an illegitimate move. Peter does not say baptism is a symbol of salvation. He says baptism now saves you. Paul does not say baptism is a symbol of your union with Christ. He says in baptism, you're united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Baptism is an effective instrument, a tool in God's hands. Baptism is not something we do, it's something we receive. Baptism is not our work, it's God's work. You might say, oh, but I saw you baptize that baby today. It looked like a human work. First, notice that Bo didn't do anything. He didn't contribute anything to his baptism. And second, think about what Jesus... I already compared a baptism to a wedding ceremony. Think about what Jesus says about marriage. He says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's God who joins the man and the woman together in the covenant of marriage. And yet, I'm sure that you've never been to a wedding that was officiated by Jesus himself in the flesh on earth. It's always been a pastor or some other kind of civic official. But God uses that pastor as his instrument to join the man and the woman together in the covenant of marriage. And God uses baptism. Yes, applied by a human officiant. God uses baptism as his instrument to join the one baptized to Christ. Taken together, all these passages I've given to you, We can say these passages give us a very rich and deep understanding of what baptism means. Baptism is, as our shorter catechism says, an effectual means of salvation. And these passages together show us that. Baptism means you have a new past. Your story is now Christ's story. His death and resurrection is your story. The story of Israel is now your story. The story of the Bible is now your story. Baptism gives you a new path. Baptism means Christ's story is now your story. You've got a new identity and a new name. Baptism gives you a new future. Baptism marks out your body for resurrection glory. It assures you of the hope of glory. Baptism gives you a new future. Baptism means you have a new present, a new life in Christ right this moment with new powers the power to say no to sin, and the power to say yes to obedience. Again, that's Paul in Romans 6. Baptism means you have a new community. The church is now your family. The family of God is now your family. You have a new in-group. You're a part of God's adopted family. And baptism means you have a new mission. A mission to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. A mission to proclaim God's gospel to the whole world in word and deed. That becomes your mission in baptism. New past, new present, new future, new community, new mission. All these things are given to us in baptism. How then does this connect to our children? Well, one thing we see in Scripture is that God deals not just with individuals, but families or households. God created the family. It's His institution, His structure, and He works in it. And one thing we see in Scripture again and again is that God's covenant promises always include the next generation. If God loves you, you can know God loves your children. That's how we are with one another, right? If you love somebody... And then, you know, you, 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 you love a couple, say a husband-wife couple, and they're having a baby. You love that baby too because you love the parents. Your love flows to the next generation. Our love for one another is transgenerational. It's one of the ways we image God. God's love is transgenerational. His covenant promises always include the next generation. His covenant promises are always future-oriented. So we saw this in the reading from Genesis 17. God says to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. I don't just love you, Abraham. I love your children as well. There's several things to notice there in Genesis 17, several things that are happening when God says, I will be a God to you and to your children. That language, that's the language of relationship and in context, it's the language of salvation. To say that God is our God is to say he is the God who has rescued us and redeemed us. When the psalmist uses that language of my God, he's saying God is my God. He's the God who has delivered me. He's the God who has claimed me and made, us, and made me his own. And so if God says I'm a God to you and to your children, that means all of these things are true of our children as well. He is the God of our children. He's claimed them and rescued them and redeemed them as well. Further, we see in Genesis 17 that this covenant promise has a sign. Now, in Abraham's day, the sign was circumcision. I'm not going to go into why here or what circumcision meant. Certainly, it had to do with the fact that God had promised that through Abraham's family, a seed would come, a son would come who would be the Messiah. And circumcision was a sign that Abraham could not produce the Messiah in his own strength. The Messiah would have to be a child born of a miracle born of the spirit, not of the flesh. And, of course, Isaac illustrates that. And that comes to fulfillment with the virgin birth of Jesus. There's a lot that can be said about the meaning of circumcision. I won't go into that further here. But we can say that in the new covenant, there is still a sign to mark out God's people. Only now it's not circumcision. It's baptism. Indeed, we can say baptism fulfills and expands and transforms the meaning of circumcision. Everything circumcision pointed to, and a whole bunch more, is bound up in baptism. The new covenant does not eradicate the Abrahamic covenant, it fulfills it. In Genesis 17, you also see that this covenant is conditional. It's a breakable covenant, not on God's side. God always keeps his covenants, but on the Our side. We have a responsibility to respond to his covenant with trust. And so God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me. Keep covenant with me. Trust me and obey me we have to respond to God's covenant with trust and with obedience. See, on God's side, God makes promises and then God keeps those promises. But what do we do on our side? We must receive those promises. We must believe those promises. We must structure our lives in terms of those promises. And those who don't trust God, you see in this chapter, are cut off. Genesis 17 makes that clear as well. And of course, this principle of being cut off or being cut out of the covenant. This is a principle that gets worked out in the history of Israel. All kinds of passages we could point to, but Romans 11 is one that's really clear that comes to mind. It shows us the structure of the covenant, how it works. Paul in Romans 11 uses the olive tree as a kind of symbol of God's covenant people. The children of Abraham are branches on the olive tree. And in Romans 11, Paul says, so the Israelites and their children are natural branches on the olive tree. But he makes it really clear, those who don't believe, those who don't persevere in faith will be broken out of the olive tree, broken out and cast away. They'll be cut off. And those who do believe, who come from outside, can be grafted in along with their children. And so there are wild branches who are grafted in. For Paul there, that's the Gentiles who are being grafted in. And of course, now their children will grow as new branches on the tree as well. But there is a kind of conditionality. The heart of covenant keeping is promise believing. That's what we see again and again in Scripture. We have to keep covenant. And the way we keep covenant is by trusting in the God of the covenant who has made the covenant promises. And finally, in Genesis 17, we notice that when this covenant includes children, it doesn't set some kind of minimum age. Or if it does, we could say it's eight days. Although even there, it's clear God has a relationship with the child even before the eighth day. Because if the child is not circumcised on the eighth day, then he is said to be a covenant breaker. So there's already some kind of covenant in place even before the child's circumcision. And this is where you see how countercultural this biblical covenantal way of thinking is. Because we're so used to autonomy and thinking in terms of creating an identity for ourselves by our individual choices. In Genesis 17, what do you see? Identity is not chosen by the child. Identity is granted as a gift. The child doesn't grow up and make a decision to join the covenant. No, he is included in the covenant from birth or really even from conception, God says to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your children. That means God is the God of our teenagers and of our toddlers and of our infants and even of our zygotes. God is their God. And you see this worked out in the rest of Scripture. The children of God's people are covenant children. We could say today, the children of God's people are Christian children children. They're to be raised as Christians. They're set apart. They're saints. They're holy ones. They're covenant members. They're church members. And so in Matthew 19, we read this passage this morning. Jesus welcomes the little children to himself. The disciples didn't want the kids coming. They didn't think the kids had a place in Jesus' kingdom. But no, Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God. And that is not a comment on their innocence, because children are not innocent. By nature, children are sinners. By nature, they're objects of wrath. But Jesus here is describing what they are, not by nature, but by grace. What they are in virtue of God's covenant promise. Jesus is welcoming the children to himself into his kingdom. In accord with these covenant promises. The kingdom of Jesus includes children. In Luke's account, it's even infants who are being brought to him. Even infants being included in the children, in the the kingdom, and being blessed by Jesus. In the book of Acts, we see several household baptisms indicating God still works in and through households, even after Pentecost. Pentecost did not take a corporate covenant and individualize it. No, we see in the book of Acts, God still makes promises to whole households. When the Philippian jailer gets convicted of his sin and cries out, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe and be baptized and you and your household will be saved. There's that household language connected with faith and with baptism, just like everywhere else in Scripture. In Ephesians, we see this same framework in place. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is addressed in chapter 1 to the church in Ephesus, to the saints in Ephesus, to those who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, to those who were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, and those who have been adopted in Christ Jesus. That's who the letter is addressed to. Well, later on in the letter... Paul starts to address various subgroups within the congregation. He breaks the congregation down into various segments. And so you've got husbands and wives who are addressed, and you've got masters and slaves, and yes, you have children who are addressed as well. Which means Paul regarded them as church members, as saints, as chosen ones, as adopted ones, as members of the church, In Ephesus. All the things that could be said of that church community that gathered in Ephesus could be said of their children as well. And so in Ephesians 6, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, the only way they can obey in the Lord is if they are actually in the Lord. They have to be in the Lord, in union with the Lord, to obey in the Lord. And we've already seen from Romans 6 and elsewhere the connection between baptism and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. How baptism and union go together. God creates the union through baptism. So if, we're to, if our children are to obey in the Lord, that can only happen if they've been baptized into the Lord. What Paul says there presupposes that the children have been baptized. Paul's instructions to the children in Ephesus presuppose their baptisms. You cannot make sense of it otherwise. There's no way the children can obey in the Lord if they're not in the Lord. Likewise, Paul tells Christian fathers in Ephesians 6, bring up your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. In other words, raise them as Christians. Raise them on the promises. Raise them in the covenant. Raise them as Christians. That really is the burden of Christian parenting. This is what Christian parenting is all about. It's to raise our children on the promises. It's to teach them all that God has promised and all that God has commanded. It's to teach your children to sing and pray to God as Christians, to trust Him and obey Him as Christians. The burden of Christian parenting is to teach your children that their lives belong to God, that God has claimed them in their baptisms. They belong to Him. They are in Christ's body. They're in His church. And they belong to Christ in body and soul because Christ purchased them with His blood. And that's their comfort. And that's also their challenge. And that's the burden of Christian parenting. To teach your children this. It's to teach your children to fight. To fight the good fight. To fight the fight of faith. When your child was baptized, he was enlisted into the Lord's army. He was drafted into the Lord's army. And he's now a soldier and a servant of Christ. Think about this. As soon as Jesus got baptized, what happened? Satan declared war on him and Satan attacked him. And Jesus had to go fight Satan in the wilderness. Every baptized person will be attacked by the evil one. That's why in our baptismal vows, we renounce Satan. We renounce the evil one because as soon as you're baptized, he's going to attack. To get baptized is to put a target on yourself. It's to put a, a bull's eye on you. And this is true for our children as well. They're going to be attacked. They have to learn to fight the fight of faith. They have to learn how to put on the whole armor of God. That's why today, uh, after the baptism, in the declaration that I read that comes from the Book of Common Prayer, I called upon Beau Bourgeois to fight manfully under the banner of the cross. It's a warfare that will last his whole life long just as it does For all of us. We're all called as God's baptized people to fight manfully under the banner of the cross. This is what Christian parents do. They raise up warriors. They raise up fighters. They raise up kids who know how to fight in the Lord and for the Lord. Why is it that godly men, godly men who know how to practice self-control are an endangered species in the church? It's because you know Jordan Peterson's out there trying to pick up the slack, but he can't really do it because he doesn't have the gospel. But why are godly men an endangered species in the church? Because largely because Christian parents have failed. We fail to do this very thing—to raise up our children as faithful fighters in the kingdom. We can say the same thing about women. Why are godly women who can resist? the lure and the pressures of various feminist movements, the pressure towards androgyny, the pressures to to idolize career over family life, these kinds of pressures that are put on women today. Why are so few Christian women able to resist these kinds of pressures? Again, it's largely because Christian parents have failed. We have failed to teach our children to fight faithfully under the banner of the cross. We have failed to raise our children as Christian children. Maybe the most interesting text along these lines is the one that we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is dealing there with mixed marriages uh, where you have a couple that hears the gospel when Paul is on his missionary tour in Corinth. And one spouse believes and the other does not, and so now you have a mixed marriage. Now they're unequally yoked. You should never purposefully enter into an unequal, an unequally yoked marriage, of course. But it can. It does happen in missionary situations. And so Paul has to address this. It's not something that Jesus addressed in his earthly ministry, but it's something Paul has to address as a result of his mission to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, if your non-Christian spouse will stay with you, then stay with them. And if they want to go, then let them go. But he says, don't worry that your non-Christian spouse will defile you. Your non-Christian spouse does not defile you. Instead, you sanctify the unbelieving spouse. And then he adds, he says, for otherwise your children would be unclean, but they're holy. Now Paul has to address this issue Because under the Old Covenant, under the law, corruption and uncleanness spread. And so under the Old Covenant, if you touched a ceremonially unclean person like a leper or a corpse, that uncleanness spread to you. But then we see Jesus in the Gospels going around and touching just these kinds of people. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, he cleanses them. He he cleanses the leper. He raises the corpses. He doesn't become unclean. Rather, his cleanness overcomes that uncleanness. And Paul says this power, the power of Jesus is now with you. And so if you find yourself in a mixed marriage, you're not defiled by it. You don't have to do what they did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and separate yourself to maintain your holiness. No, you can stay in the marriage because now the non-Christian spouse is sanctified by you. The marriage is still holy because of your holiness. And not only that, Paul says, but your children are holy as well. Indeed, This is why we would baptize the child even if only one parent is a believer because the child of that union is still holy. But I want you to note something else here, and this is what most clearly pertains to what I'm talking about this morning. While the unbelieving spouse and the child are both called holy, there is still a difference put between them the child is actually put in the category not of the unbelieving spouse and that kind of holiness, but in the category of the believing spouse and that kind of holiness. What kind of holiness is Paul saying the unbelieving spouse has by being married to a believer? The holiness is probably some kind of nearness to God, some kind of influence of the truth upon the person because this non-Christian is married to a Christian. But the holiness of the child is altogether different. It's a holiness that entails salvation and church membership. And I think you see this if you look at verse 16. Let me gloss it for you this way. How do you know, O Christian wife, if you will save your non-Christian husband? Or how do you know, O Christian husband, if you will save your non-Christian wife? But notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, "Oh, you Christian parent, how do you know if you will save your non-Christian child? Because for Paul, that's not the case. The child is not a non-Christian. This is not an issue. For Paul, the child is already counted and treated as a fellow Christian. What Paul does not say there is every bit as important as what he does say. And Paul here is reinforcing the way the covenant works. We see this again and again. The covenant includes our children. The church is God's new humanity, and so it is co-extensive with the old humanity. It includes men and women, Jew and Gentile, adults and children, yes, even infants. The story of the whole human race has been swept up into God's covenant. God is our God and the God of our children. God has the same relationship with your kids he has with you. He has given them the same promises, the same forgiveness, the same Holy Spirit. You struggle with sin, they struggle with sin. You have to persevere in the faith, they have to persevere in the faith. You need to grow in love and in obedience. You need discipling. Your children need to grow in love and obedience. They need discipling. That's what these texts Say to Christian parents. That's what they say to Christian parents. Let me close with this. Paul spoke to the children in Ephesians 6. Let me speak to the children here for just a minute as well, speaking directly to you children. Kids, do you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear what all these passages from the Bible say to you and about you? Kids, these passages show that you are Christian children. That's what I'm saying here. You are Christians. You belong to God. All of you. Your hands belong to God. Your eyes belong to God. Your ears belong to God. Your whole body is God's. Your whole life is God's. And so as a Christian child, you're called to live for Him. You need to understand you're part of His church. God loves you. Jesus died for you. The Holy Spirit is in you. God forgives your sin. God's given you His Holy Spirit to help you obey Him. That's what all of these passages show you, kids. That these things are true of you. So kids, when you sing Jesus loves me, this I know, you are singing the truth. And kids, when your brothers or sisters sin against you, you should be quick to forgive them because God has forgiven you. You know you've been forgiven and so you can forgive others who sin against you. And kids, when you pray, whether you're praying for something you want to see God do or you're praying because you're scared and you want God's comfort, when you pray, you can know that your heavenly Father hears you. And He hears you because you're His child and you have a special relationship with Him. And kids, know that when you come to church with your parents, you're here. You come to church because you are part of the church. You're not just here to watch the adults worship. You're here to worship your God. Your God. God is your God too. And because you are baptized, you can do all of these things right now. Kids, understand, you're not just the church of the future. You're the church of the present too. You're the church of right now. This is God's call for all of us as His baptized people to live faithfully, to keep covenant with Him, to fight the good fight of faith. Let us trust God. Let us trust in the God of the covenant. Let us trust in this God who is faithful to a thousand generations. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your covenant promises to us. You made a promise through Isaiah that You would fill the earth with the knowledge of Yourself as the waters cover the sea. And every time someone is baptized, whether young or old, more of that water, that saving water, is poured out to flood the earth. Oh Lord, we long to see you flood the earth with your grace and your salvation and your mercy, to flood the earth with the waters of baptism. Father, we know that on the one hand, baptism shows that there is something radically wrong with us, radically wrong with the world. We're dirty and fallen. We need to be cleansed and restored. And yet in baptism, we see you doing this. Baptism is a sign and an instrument of your salvation, cleansing us and restoring us, making us new by the blood of Christ and the working of your Holy Spirit. We give you thanks and praise for our baptism and every other means you use to save us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
1: As God's royal priesthood, let us stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, Blessed Son, Eternal Spirit, 3 in 1, 1 in 3, God of our salvation, we adore you as one being, one essence, one God in three distinct persons. We praise you for bringing sinners to the knowledge of you and into your kingdom. O oh, Father, you have loved us, your children, sent your Son to redeem us and given us your Holy Spirit to reveal us, to us the glories of Jesus, three persons and one God. We bless and praise you for your love, so unmerited, so wondrous, so mighty, to save the lost and to raise us to glory. Father, you are enthroned to hear our prayers, your Son at your right hand to take our, our petitions, and your Holy Spirit willing to help our weaknesses, to show us our needs, to supply words, to pray within us, and to strengthen us to serve you. Triune God, who commands the universe, you have commanded us to ask of those things that concern your kingdom and our souls. Let us live and pray as those baptized into your triune name. Father, we thank you for this congregation, for the blessedness of having a family of believers who love you, who love one another. We thank you for the covenantal relationship we have with you and with one another, that relationship that brings Beau Pierce Bourgeois into your church today. Father, we ask that you equip us for your service we thank you for the gifts you have given due to us, and we pray that we would not be slow to use them fully for your glory. Show us when and how to meet the needs of those around us. We pray that you would make this congregation a blessing to this community, a light to the lost, a help for those in need, an encouragement to our brothers and sisters and the other congregations in this city. Father, as you already know, we are a congregation with many needs, and we pray for your merciful help, for wisdom for our church leaders, a fuller knowledge of your word for our teachers, continued skill for our musicians, for Theopolis' continued outreach into our culture, for John Crawford as the new executive director, for the upcoming conferences that Theopolis is sponsoring, for those in our congregation traveling this summer for their safety, For our youth traveling to Summer Sanctus soon, for both safety and the blessing of hearing your word and understanding its application. For the Hanbees as they resettle into their church and community in Michigan, for Jacob and his ministry there. For David and Stephanie Woods as they move to Denver this week, may you bless them with a faithful church community there. For those seeking employment or better employment, for singles desiring marriage, for couples desiring children, For our recent graduates as they transition into school and career choices. For those who mourn the loss of a loved one. And for all who are persecuted for your sake here and around the world. Lord, there are those in our congregation, our family members, our friends who are sick and afflicted. And we lift them up to you individually now. We thank you, our triune God, for the joys of this life and for a reason to celebrate as we gather this evening for Trinity Fest. Good news is always a reason to celebrate, and there is no better news than your saving work, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May our time together be a refreshment to us all this afternoon. And for all these things, Father, and any others which you may see that we need, we ask in your Son's name and we pray as Christ himself taught us to pray. Amen.